This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on uh, what has turned out to be a rather snowy day here in the capital city region. Um, I remember driving in this morning, and it was all sticking to the pavement everywhere. It was a little bit of a greasy commute in. Yeah, I I found it pretty good, but I think we came in from opposite areas. <laughs> well, yeah. okay. All right. You're going to use it again to lord yeah, it I'm over sorry. me. I found it You're okay. from CBS. I get it. <laughs> I suppose I now the sun was splitting the rocks and you were out on the beach and lost track of the time. <laughs> yeah, my toes were in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get tired of that? No, I don't <laughs> actually. And sometimes I'm shocked when usually when I come in, uh, you know, you're just on Pitts Memorial, you're going on Manuel's Arterial, and then you just descend into CBS. And sometimes when the weather isn't the greatest, I'm just a little ticked that we're not living up to, you know, the uh, all the hype, but... For the most part, it's good. Yeah, for any of our uh, listeners not familiar, <laughs> if you're in St. John's and, you know, you can't see your hand in front of your face or whatever the case may be, uh, you just have to go over the old Pitts Memorial, and as you head over the, the ridge and head down into CBS, guess what? <laughs> the sun it's is shining. The, the sun is shining, <laughs> and the wind stops blowing, and the birds are... The airport should have been there, chirping. in the trees, <laughs> and, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, anyway, it's... Sickening, I know. It, it, <laughs> turn your guts. So anyway, uh, so the people in CBS who work or commute into St. Yeah. John's every day must be like, la, 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 la. Oh. Yeah. Although, you know, I find um, going in for the best, like, snow clearing and stuff, pretty usually I'm pretty impressed with Paradise. By the time you get to Paradise, it seems like that's that's when everything is, you know, really done well. So Well, except that they get all the snow. True. All of it. Yep. <laughs> All of the snow. Um, so they need it? to do something with it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was like well into June month, and I happened to dart into uh, paradise for re- for some reason or another. Um, we have family living in there, and, um, you know, snowbanks are still up over your head. But Which anyway. sucks in the spring. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> um, but, you know, we all have our own little wonderful little pieces of paradise yeah. so to speak here in newfoundland and labrador and uh, anyone outside of the uh, metro region is like sure come out here we got well, well it's true they have the best winter in on the west coast wouldn't they normally Corner brook is a whole different i mean it's beautiful animal yeah and uh, labrador yeah i've never been to labrador now they're in for quite the snow tonight and into tomorrow as is the west coast yeah so uh, stay tuned we'll keep you up to date on all of that as well but Lots more news on the go. The task force that was formed last week, um, it was the one that was set up to address homelessness and the issues stemming from the tent encampment near Colonial Building in St. John's, uh, provided a little update today on their work to date. The task force is made up, of course, of representatives of various provincial government departments, the city of St. John's, a number of community groups, including N Homelessness St. John's, Thrive, and The Gathering Place, just to name a few, uh, Transportation and Works Minister John Abbott provided an update to reporters this afternoon, including VOCM's Richard Duggan. 
the task force uh, that was set up by the Premier to address the acute care homelessness issue in the city, particularly around the folks that are staying down at the Colonial Building site. Uh, we met with some of the folks that are uh, organizers and sort of, in a, I'll call it in the protest uh, world, uh, and we wanted to get uh, a conversation going with them to get their thoughts, insights, uh, perspectives on how we as a task force uh, should operate in coming up with solutions. And uh, so we're, the, the conversations are still ongoing, and the mayor is still up there with them, and uh, we're going to go back and, and continue those discussions. What are some of your main takeaways from the conversation so far? Well, it's very obvious to me that we share really many of the same goals here, which is how we can find both short, medium, long-term solutions for the individuals, both here that are immediately in front of us, but also uh, elsewhere in the city or possibly in the future. Uh, what we want to see is how we can come up with individual solutions that meet the immediate needs, and that's what we're focused on right now. Uh, we've talked about the role of the, the task force, uh, of what it can do and how it can be structured. Uh, right now we are looking, and the request was made, uh, should we have members from the community? Uh, should we have members from the quote-unquote 10 city? Uh, should we have some of the organizers involved? And we're going to take that back and have that discussion as well internally. Uh, what I want to see as, as, I guess, chairing that, but certainly as provincial minister in the district MHA, is how we can find immediate solutions so the folks are safe, warm, and that they're provided the appropriate supports uh, right away. And that's really what the uh, heavy lifting is right now. So how often has the task force been down to Tent City, and what have they learned, you know, in talking to the people who are living in the tent? Well, individually, we have been there, me as a, a MHA and as minister, I've been down, met uh, uh, with uh, individuals. Uh, I know the mayor has been there uh, and homelessness folks and everybody else has been there. And we're, one of the things we are doing right now is making sure that anybody who's down there from a public agency, a community agency that we're compiling and collecting information so we know who's there, what services they need, are they attached to uh, any particular program or service here in the city, and then if there are gaps in those services right now, how do we fill them in so that they can feel safe and secure on a go-forward basis. Is there anything going to change after this meeting, or is this just talking about the structure and how you're going to tackle the problem? Well, basically is how we're going to tackle the problems, uh, and that is how we can come up with solutions for each individual, because they are at a di everybody is a different place. Uh, they have particular in, uh, particular needs. They may have uh, housing immediate housing needs. They may have obviously, and they have uh, support other support needs. So we want to make sure we got those in place for them, so that we can really say, folks, if you are, are interested and you think this is the right solution for you, after consulting and making sure they have the input in the, their plan, uh, that we can then allow them to move from a tent into a secure place. So that's Transportation and Works Minister John Abbott speaking with reporters today, and we'll have more on uh, the progress to date uh, made by the task force uh, set up to address homelessness and um, uh, the issues stemming from the tent encampment near Colonial Building in uh, VOCM News tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. Well, the provincial government has reached the next phase in establishing an integrated ambulance service, as outlined in the last provincial budget. A request for proposals was issued today for the design 
design, management, and operation of a single integrated road and air ambulance service in the province. The service was a key recommendation of the Health Accord with the aim, according to government, to further modernize the province's health care system. The successful proponent will be responsible for managing the program, staff, and budget on behalf of Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services. The staff will be employed by the Health Authority, and additional employees are expected to be needed once the contract is awarded. Aviation medevac services will be contracted out, while all medical flight staff will remain with the public health system. Well, here's Minister Tom Osborne. We are uh, pleased today to say that we're moving towards the next step of an integrated ambulance service that will serve the entire province. Uh, The RFP uh, will be going out um, either later today or tomorrow uh, to uh, look for a proponent that will uh, manage the overall integrated system, uh, central dispatch, um, help with uh, workforce planning and a number of other Uh, areas to ensure that we have a fully integrated, coordinated ambulance system for both uh, ground ambulance and fixed and rotary wing uh, air ambulance to serve the entire province. Part of this will see a greater uh, focus on a helicopter uh, or rotary wing air ambulance uh, to serve the areas of the province that have traditionally not been served as well as we would like to have seen them served by either fixed or road ambulance, a fixed wing or road ambulance in the province. So that we will see a greater focus on, on helicopter services. Uh, we'll see a, 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 a greater uh, focus on uh, integrating air ambulance and all of the, uh, the road ambulance in the province will be under the public uh, system through the Provincial Health Authority. Uh, Cassie? Thank you, Minister. Yes, it's a great day. We're really looking forward to this change. Uh, This is something that we've um, been looking for for quite a while. It's uh, another step towards realizing the vision of the Health Accord. Um, Our system right now is, um, is... is fragmented in many ways, and we have a, a, a large province with a diverse geography. We really need a very integrated, modernized um, air and road ambulance system that is designed, purpose-built to meet the needs of Newfoundland and Labrador. So that is Health Minister Tom Osborne, accompanied by uh, Cassie Chisholm, uh, making that announcement today. But NAEP, alarmed with government's announced plans to contract out air ambulance services. President Jerry Earle says uh, government is giving with one hand while taking with the other and issuing an RFP for integrated services that will be provided by the private sector while employing public sector employees. He accuses the provincial government of talking out of both sides of its mouth. On one end, they're recognized after a very long time that bringing a portion of the private healthcare system back into public realm to find efficiencies and better serve Newfoundland is a good thing. But on the flip side, after saying, oh, it's not good enough if you rely on an air ambulance system, we are now going to go actually move it, that to a private sector where we have people providing this critical service and air services for decades. 
So that is a bit of what uh, Jerry Earl had to say. We'll hear more uh, on his comments tomorrow morning during the VOCM Morning Show. Well, coming up, we'll get an update on respiratory illness in the province. This is News Talk on VOCM. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCMcares.com. And we are back. Well, COVID and flu cases on the rise right across Canada, leading some healthcare officials to issue warnings about further spread of illness as the busy Christmas season approaches. Well, Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. So, I don't know about you, but a lot of people, I'm hearing from more and more people in my immediate circle uh, who are starting to fall ill. And we're hearing uh, news now out of Ontario, for instance, that the uh, the rate of resp- respiratory illnesses is increasing dramatically, COVID being among them. What is the situation here and, and, and are we keeping an eye on things? Oh, we're certainly keeping an eye on things, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing, uh, with regard to flu, for example, we're seeing um, a slightly earlier start to the season than we normally would see. Um, but that's not unexpected as, you know, that same sort of trend was seen elsewhere in the world um, earlier in their flu seasons, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, so, yeah, we're seeing we're seeing a little bit more of flu. Um, we're starting to see a slight increase in COVID activity over the last couple of weeks. Um, and uh, but certainly, again, not out of keeping with uh, with what we're seeing else in some other jurisdictions in the country. It's a little bit uh, uh, variable, really, through uh, throughout the country as to uh, who's seeing more more COVID or more flu um, with some jurisdictions seeing more flu than COVID and some the other way around. So Christmas is only a couple of weeks away. Um, does this cause you any concern when you start to see these numbers rising just prior to Christmas when everybody traditionally gets together? Um, you know, certainly uh, not unexpected that we would see it. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know, important for everybody to be aware that uh, that, that is the case. And if they are feeling unwell, uh, probably better not to be um, to be attending parties and things like that where they could spread it to other people. Um, and, uh, you know, but if they are in a situation where they have to uh, be around others to consider wearing a mask to reduce the risk of spread, um, and and then of course people can also do you know make an assessment and decide if they need to wear a mask to protect their own health as well. Um, and of course, the most important thing really to get vaccinated and uh, against both flu and COVID uh, to reduce your risk of uh, not only contracting the disease, but if you do get it, to, to have less severe disease. So the current vaccines for flu and COVID are they a good protection against getting it? Yeah, well, the COVID vaccine that's uh, that we're giving uh, this fall is against um, the XBB variants um, for uh, of COVID, and of course, what we're seeing circulating now are all XBB kind of subvariants. And um, with regard to flu, uh, it's a bit early to know uh, efficacy as yet, but uh, um, you know, we certainly still encourage people to get their flu shots. 
On the XBB and these subvariants, um, Health Canada, of course, has just uh, approved a new um, vaccine specifically for one of these new subvariants, that which is uh, my understanding is uh, uh, the prominent or dominant strain right now. So, uh, will we start incorporating that new vaccine into our vaccination program? And um, does the current vaccine offer the same protection that this new vaccine might? Uh, so the new vaccine is actually, it is against XBB. It's against the same uh, strains that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are against. It's just a slightly different um, uh, type of vaccination. Um, we've had uh, this uh, vaccine in the province all along. This company has made other versions of COVID vaccine. So this is just their updated version of the uh, XBB version of that, that vaccine, right? So, yeah, it'll be incorporated. The recommendation is that, you know, people should get an mRNA vaccine, but there are some people where that's not possible. So uh, this this other vaccine is uh, certainly recommended for them. Right. So it just has a different, um, it, it, instead of mRNA, it's, it's a different type of um, approach to... Yes, it's a different type of vaccination. So it uses more of a... a I'm not a, I'm not a vaccine specialist by any stra- a vaccine development specialist, but yeah, it uses a, a, a protein version as opposed to an mRNA technology. Yeah, so it's a different technology used to develop the vaccine. That um, you know, for some people who've had reactions to mRNA vaccines or something along those lines, they would be able to receive this vaccine. So it's another option available as it's opposed to yeah, um, yeah a, a new vaccine that we all require. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right on. So uh, what, you know, are you still sort of making projections? Um, uh, You know, what do you anticipate over uh, the Christmas holiday period? So as we normally would see over Christmas, I think we'll see a little bit of an increase, uh, you know, as people do get together and uh, spend more time with families and inside. Uh, I expect we will see a little uh, a little bit of a rise in case counts over uh, or after the holidays, over and after the holidays, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think we're not anticipating that we're going to see um, huge surges. Uh, that certainly is not um anticipated at this time. Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, I do appreciate your time. I guess the the main message is, as always, uh, be prepared and viruses are out there. Protect yourself. Yeah, make sure you get your vaccines. And and if I can just add that, you know, you can get them at the at the public health clinics, uh, as well as through your pharmacies and physicians. So, um, you know, wherever you can get it the quickest, I guess, is where you should go. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So um, an increase expected over the holiday period, which is to be expected, I would imagine, because um, we all get together and we're eating at the same tables and... We let our guard down. Yeah. I feel, you know, um, you know, just because we're familiar with our family members and that sometimes we need to hear interviews like that as a reminder. Okay. Yep. Hand sanitizer. Let's just not be all over each other. It's just not worth it. And I do, and we've mentioned this before, but I do notice that uh, more and more now in grocery stores and pharmacies and uh, department stores and that sort of thing, you're starting to see more people wearing masks for whatever reason they're, they're wearing them. I guess that, you know, because it's a little more congested these days, a 
a lot more people on the go. Uh, so, uh, you know, whatever your comfort level is or whatever your personal circumstances are, it's a, it's a wise move uh, for anyone who's concerned about spread of illness. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, we might be okay, but then we have family members with certain, like you said, certain conditions that we don't want to bring it home to them. So, yeah, it's just uh, another reminder for me to be vigilant. I've uh, got my vaccines all up to date, too. Yeah, and I didn't realize that this new uh, vaccine that was approved um, isn't... um, you know something new that we need it's just a an option to the moderna and the pfizer if you know what i mean right uh, so like dr janice fitzgerald explained you know it's it's about the method that it offers the protection rather than <laughs> my words fail me i'm anyway that's okay we heard i i understand the doctors out there listening to me yeah. now going oh linda would you just stop <laughs> would you just stop uh but yeah so it's not it, it's not that everybody needs this new one that they've just approved it's anybody who is unable to get an mrna vaccine which is the type of um you know science that's used to mm-hmm. deliver the protection uh this is a different type of delivery system if you will uh for want of better words did i do okay i thought that was great all right thanks a lot <laughs> thanks claudette <laughs> well when we come back a uh, different type of uh protection and something to keep in mind uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the threat of cyber attacks and uh the use of generative ai and some of the concerns that that is producing not just in our regular lives but in a in a larger uh, cyber attack kind of way so uh, we'll have some of those conversations when we come back after the break this is news talk on vocm win your christmas cash with a vocm cares for the community 50 50 draw buy your tickets until december 16th at vocm.com and we are back. Well, the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity this week released its 2023 update report on cyber threats to Canada's democratic process, identifying the rise in cyber threats worldwide and the growing use of generative AI to spread disinformation. Well, here's Chief of Communications Security Establishment, Caroline Xavier. First, let me clarify quickly what this report is not about. We are not talking about online disinformation in general. If we were, the number of elections targeted would be 100%. Online disinformation has become ubiquitous. It occurred in every single national election we looked at. 146 out of 146. Our data sets only include online influence activities that involve some kind of hacking element or that make use of artificial intelligence. So things like hack-a-leak operations, deep fake videos, posting disinformation on a politician's social media account. This information spread by human beings is out of scope. Troll farms staffed by humans is out of scope, unless they used AI to amplify disinformation. In-person foreign interference is out of scope. So now that we're clear on the focus, let's get down to the four trends. Trend number one, targeting of democratic processes has increased. Cyber threat activity targeting elections is on the rise worldwide. Over a quarter of national elections were affected in 2022. The exact figure is 26%, 
up from 23 the year before. In 2022, cyber incidents geared towards influencing voters, such as hack and leak operations, were seven times more common than cyber incidents aimed at compromising the vote process itself. Trend number two, Russia and China continue to conduct most of the attributed cyber threat activity targeting foreign elections. Only two countries have been identified as being behind cyber threat activity targeting another country's national elections in 2022. Those two countries are Russia and China. In 2022, we found that 9% of cyber threat activity targeting foreign elections was attributed to Russia and 6% to China. That leaves 85% unaccounted for, which brings me to trend number three. The majority of cyber threat activity targeting elections is unattributed. Foreign adversaries are getting better at hiding their identities. They increasingly outsource their activities to avoid attribution. Examples include using non-state cyber threat groups to conduct distributed denial of service attacks, also known as DDoS attacks, or hiring commercial firms to conduct online influence operations. Trend number four. Generative AI is increasingly being used to influence elections. Foreign adversaries are increasingly using artificial intelligence to create disinformation, to spread disinformation, and to amplify disinformation. AI-generated deep fakes can create a video of something that never happened and put words into politicians' mouth that they never said. Social botnets enhanced by AI can artificially amplify disinformation that's already out there to fan the flames of political discord and push people to more extreme positions. So what are the implications for Canada? Canada is not immune to any of these global trends. I have to say that when we hear from folks outside of our professional world, they have a hard time believing that anyone would want to target us. But I can tell you that is very much the case. And we are doing our best to make our sure Canadians know this because you are far more likely to fall victim to it if you're not aware of it. So to be clear, we assess the cyber threat activity is more likely to happen during Canada's next federal election than it was in the past. Canada remains, however, a lower priority target than some of its allies like the US and the UK. However, deep fakes and foreign influence campaigns aimed at the US voters will likely impact Canadians by association. Foreign adversaries are likely to use generative AI to try to influence Canadian voters over the next two years. And if you add in hacktivists, the assessment becomes very likely. Increased tensions between Canada and a hostile state in the run-up to the federal election would likely lead to cyber threat activity, including online influence campaigns. Finally, because cyber threat actors are getting more are getting better, sorry, at covering their, their tracks, it will become increasingly difficult for Canada to attribute any cyber threat activity that does occur in relation to our democratic process. So what are we doing about it? I will have to admit that this sounds very bleak, but let me end on a more positive note. Yes, it's true that adversaries are seeking to manipulate our democratic processes, but that doesn't mean that we are powerless to stop them. As a member of the site task force, the Security and Intelligence Threats to Elections Task Force, it is our role to monitor foreign signals intelligence and Government of Canada IT networks for signs of foreign interference in our elections. 
In the event of a cyber attack on Canada's election infrastructure, CSC has the capabilities and the legal authorities to conduct defensive cyber operations. This means taking action online to disrupt cyber threat activity at the source. The Cyber Centre works closely with Elections Canada and the provincial and territorial election authorities to make sure that they are aware of the threats and have the appropriate mitigations in place to offset them. During the federal election period, we provide a 24-hour cybersecurity hotline for candidates. We also offer cybersecurity briefings to all the federal political parties and have issued guidance for candidates and campaign teams. Canadian voters can find a wealth of resources on our website, including tips on how to identify disinformation. The address is cyber.gc.ca. The resources are found there, and they're also listed on the last page of this report. The Government of Canada also has a webpage about online disinformation, with links to fact-checking tools from organizations like MediaSmart's Snopes. Just type online disinformation into the search box anywhere on the canada.gc.ca site and you will find it. Finally, we should say that this is an unclassified report open to anyone and everyone, and this is intentional. CSE also produces reports for the Government of Canada decision makers at the classified level, which goes in a bit more detail. We are wide awake to the cyber effects, to the cyber threats facing Canada's democratic process, and we want you to be too, as well as all Canadians. Our democracy will be as strong as we make it, and every single one of us has a part to play. So that is Chief of the Communications Security Establishment, Caroline Xavier. Uh, she's with the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, which released its 2023 update report on cyber threats to Canada's democratic process. And she was clear uh, right from the start there that the report is not on uh, online disinformation, which she said is rampant ubiquitous it, mm -hmm. it, it's it, it's it's always been there and it's always going to be there this was about uh disinformation that has been weaponized if you know what i mean intentionally put there to create discord to create um uh, more polarizing views and uh that kind of thing a little more nefarious too. Yeah, yeah exactly and uh usually by um foreign actors if you know what i mean although the, it may be happening domestically as well if you know what i'm saying so um anyway some very interesting information uh, compiled there and as she indicated all of that information is available online we have a story that's going to be appearing in vocm news if not tomorrow then over the weekend and there'll be links there as well so um do watch out for that well coming up uh, on a similar but dissimilar type of note, uh, Canadian privacy regulators launched uh, a list of principles for the responsible development and use of generative AI. Newfoundland and Labrador's Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey joins us from Ottawa right after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. 
And we are back. Well, federal, provincial, and territorial privacy officials have launched a set of principles to advance the responsible, trustworthy, and privacy-protective development and use of generative artificial intelligence technologies in Canada. Provincial Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey joins me now from Ottawa. Well, Michael Harvey, you're in Ottawa right now um, as part of this... uh uh, meeting of Canadian privacy regulators, and I understand that uh, you've put together a uh, principle, a number of principles for the responsible development and use of generative AI. Tell us what's in this. Yeah, our federal counterpart has uh, invited us all uh, to uh, to a meeting uh, on on AI, and um, and then his actually a number of his international counterparts are in town for uh, session this afternoon that we are also fortunate to join, uh, and we uh, are talking primarily about generative AI. And this is this new form of AI that um, that uh, the world is talking about now. That's really emerged into the public consciousness in the last year. Uh, I think ChatGPT is the most obvious one, uh, but there's some other forms of generative AI as well, where where uh, you know essentially you can you can increasingly ask these uh, these bots uh, questions, and then they 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 have scraped the internet uh, for information and they will uh, be able to give you answers that uh, that sound like you know they're they're correct and, and knowledgeable um, and so this is a, a very interesting from a privacy and ethics concern um, they have many different applications and uh, and so privacy commissioners have been talking quite a lot of it about it over the last year so we decided to list a um, uh, to issue a list of principles uh, that um, uh, that companies and public bodies and healthcare custodians should follow when thinking about uh, implementing a generative AI program. It, it, it's one thing to talk principles; it's another thing to talk perhaps law or legislation. So th- these, I would imagine, are are guidelines. Any uh, idea if these will be adopted in more meaningful ways? If you know what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah. I mean, the, I think the world is uh, rushing to try to develop. Uh, a regulatory framework for artificial intelligence uh, more broadly. The federal uh, government has introduced the uh, AIDA, uh, which is before Parliament now, um, and that's going to have that will have implications for for our province, uh, both in the, the private sphere, the private sector operating in our province, and the uh, and the private elements of the health sector operating in our province. In in our uh, in turn, we have uh, made applic- uh, we've made submissions to the provincial government uh, on uh, to, to start to make provision um, for AI in both ATIPA, the Access to Information Act, and uh, the Personal Health Information Act. What we've asked for is is pretty light. We're just asking that uh, if any public body is implementing an AI program, then they do a, what's called an algorithmic impact assessment and that they let the OIPC know about that. At this point, we just want to take stock and see who's introducing what. Um, but uh, there's no question that uh, more robust 
frameworks are to come. At this stage, you know, our position as the OIPC is to try and get a legal framework for just understanding what's out there in terms of AI. But nevertheless, any AI system that occurs still has to be compliant with the law that's already on the books. So already needs to comply with some basic legal principles. And actually, the legal principles that, that are in the framework document that we've just released arises from the laws that are already on the books. And what are some of these, uh, I guess, key um, areas of concern, especially as it relates to privacy? Sure. So I'll just run, run through a few of them. Uh, and again, these are the, the principles that underlaw, uh, underlay our existing laws. So, for example, uh, any, a, any generative AI system that anyone introduces, it, you know, collects information to train its model. So uh, any, anyone needs, is collecting that information. You can't, no public body or company can just collect information just because it wants to. It needs to have legal authority for doing that. So the same here applies. If you're going to get a, you need a data set to train your model, you have to have the legal um, authority to collect that information. Um, you can only be doing it for appropriate purposes. So this has to be a, a legitimate thing that you're doing it for. You, you, um, uh, that needs to be supported by the, the legal mandate for, you know, what we talk about in Newfoundland Labrador, all of our, the public bodies covered by ATIPA or the healthcare custodians operate under a legal mandate. Whatever the initiative they're doing has to be consistent with that legal mandate. Um, it needs the, the, what they're using generative AI for needs to be necessary. So they need to make the case that they actually need to use generative AI because it collects that data to train its model. That is inherently invasive of, of privacy. And that's not to say that they shouldn't do it, but the extent to which something encroaches on privacy it needs to be a necessary encroachment to achieve the public purpose. So they need to demonstrate that and, and need to demonstrate that they're not over-collecting. Uh, they, they also need to demonstrate that, that this is not some new gimmick that they're trying out, that this is uh, the new initiative is not better done by a less privacy-encroaching uh, uh, method. So, you know, this is a, a maybe a more formal way of saying, you know, let's not chase after the shiny new thing just because it's a shiny new thing. If if the tried and true methods work better, use them if they're less privacy uh, invasive. We also have, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up here, the principle of openness. So uh, people need to have transparency. And this is really important for AI because AI involves decisions that are essentially being made by the computer, uh, then you need to have transparency into how that algorithm works. Because otherwise, AI systems can often operate like a black box. And it's not going to be good enough if these systems start to be used to make decisions about, let's say, whether your license is approved for some sort of license application is approved or whether or not you get on a wait list for a certain medical care. If the people that are held accountable, whether that's a government department or a crown agency or a healthcare custodian just points at the algorithm and says, oh, the algorithm made that decision. That's not good enough. We need to be able to understand how the algorithm works. So there needs to be openness and transparency about that. 
So those are the principles that are already in our laws, and any new AI system will need to uh, comply with those. Michael Harvey, there's a lot here to um, uh, discuss further, and uh, I know you're a busy guy. Uh, can I invite you to join us uh, when you're back in the province and have a, a further discussion on this? Well, Linda, uh, you know, coming up in January is Data Privacy Week. Uh, that might be an, a wonderful opportunity to delve in more depth into some of these topics, including this uh, this uh, topic, which is, you know, certainly uh, on the tips of everybody's tongues these days. Uh, so I'd really look forward to to doing that in January. And of course, if you if you want to do that, happily happy to do that before. Certainly. That sounds like a plan. Um, Michael Harvey, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Always happy to talk to you. Uh, so Michael Harvey, Harvey sorry, is the, uh, the province's privacy commissioner. He's joined with his uh, uh, colleagues from across the province at the invitation of the federal privacy commissioner for this uh, meeting in Ottawa to discuss uh, and put together uh, a number of principles to, as they put it, advance the responsible, trustworthy, and privacy-protective development and use of generative artificial intelligence technologies in Canada, which are being used uh, uh, in uh, companies and agencies and governments um, throughout the world right now for a variety of purposes and is um, going to be influencing our lives in a lot of ways, uh, but very little in the way of these types of um, principles and ethical um, parameters, if you will, or even legal parameters um, that have come forward as of yet. And uh, that's something that Ottawa is looking at very seriously as well. So lots to digest there. Well, another uh, cruel reminder of the passage of time. Pearl Harbor survivor Ira Schaub returned to the Hawaii Naval Base 82 years, would you believe, after Japan's bombing propelled the United States into the Second World War. Schaub was one of just five survivors at a remembrance ceremony for more than 2,300 servicemen killed on December 7th of 1941. Six men had been expected, but one of the increasingly frail men wasn't able to attend. The aging pool of Pearl Harbor survivors has been rapidly shrinking. There is now only one crew member of the USS Arizona still living. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs doesn't have statistics for how many Pearl Harbor survivors are uh, currently alive. But 82 years ago, so a lot of the people who would have witnessed or been part of that or have survived... Uh, that particular attack would have been ostensibly uh, either in their late teens or early 20s at the time. So we're looking at people who are nearing, if not over, 100 years old if they uh, are surviving. So um, really extraordinary how, um, and, you know, World War II survivors, uh, very few and the numbers dwindling all the time. So the feelings would still be as fresh as I, I just heard, you know, just to be able to go back and, and be in that environment again. I can't imagine what that would be like. Right. Even and after, you know, like you said, 82 years old. Yeah. And uh, and such a, a shocking um, a, attack for the United States at the time. Really um, completely 
a, a surprise to um, to a lot of the officials at that time. Um, and of course, I, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii. No, I haven't. No, that's one of my that's my one of my bucket list uh, places. Even after all the volcanoes are, you know. Just being oh, I don't feisty. know. I hadn't really thought about that, <laughs> uh, but thanks for bringing it to my attention. Oh, I mean, Hawaii. I mean, they're, they're volcanic islands. Yeah. So I mean, if you go there, you're going to you have know to be aware of what's going there. on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but um, uh, Pearl Harbor, of course, the um, the ship is still there under the water, and they've got this. You're able to go and oh, walk. Oh, the history would be amazing to be look to at witness. it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really quite extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, it still attracts a lot of people to this day, uh, as you can um, as you can appreciate. Um, so, here's the thing. <laughs> yes, Linda. We're not going to be on tomorrow. You and I. We're not going to be on together, no. So um, we have our Christmas social tomorrow. So our news talk has been preempted. We're going to play a little Christmas that. music We're going to play for some you. Christmas music. Um, yeah. Now, I'll be holding down the fort uh, with uh, Brian Medor uh, tomorrow afternoon. But um, because we wanted to give everybody a break, including yourself, Claudette, to uh, go out and enjoy yourselves. Uh, so uh, we won't have a news talk tomorrow. So uh, we'll be back. This show will be back on, on Monday. Monday. Uh, but stay tuned for the VOCM morning show tomorrow because we're going to have lots of the news that has occurred today and uh, dissect that all for you uh, tomorrow morning. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, have a great weekend.